Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and this is the Downtime Podcast, where we're going to be taking you deeper than ever into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. Before we get stuck into this week's episode, just a quick thank you to our supporting partners, Canyon Bikes and We Are One Composites, and we've got some great offers and giveaways for you. Canyon have just launched a whole new range of awesome e-bikes, from full-blown long-travel gravity options and race-bred e-enduro weapons to playful trail e-bikes, and there's even a new cheeky hardtail in the lineup as well. Head over to canyon.com to check them out. What's even better is that if you fancy one of Canyon's awesome new e-bikes, then as a downtime listener, you can get free bike guard on your e-bike order until midnight CET on the 3rd of June 2023 by using the code canyon-fully-charged-2023 at the checkout. That's canyon-fully-charged-2023, all in uppercase at the checkout on canyon.com. Terms and conditions do apply, and you can find those in the show notes for this episode on downtimepodcast.com. As you might have heard in the first episode of our Downtime Goes Downhill mini-series last week, we are one composites to support in the race team and we have their brand new Convergence wheels on the bikes. I can confirm that we are one have continued doing what they do and delivered wheels that have incredible ride feel, great strength and are built to an insanely high quality level. I've done multiple uplift days on them so far and as I've grown to expect with we are one wheels, they've needed zero attention. They just get on with being awesome feeling wheels that are direct but not punishing to ride. For the month of May, downtime listeners get a very generous 15% off any We Are One wheel, rim, order package, bar, and stem by using the code Downtime May 2023. That's Downtime May 2023, all one word with a capital D and a capital M. You'll find that code in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. And don't forget, you need to enter it at the very final stage of the checkout process in order for it to work. That's the confirm order page at weareonecomposites.com. It's listener survey time again, and this year Magura have been kind enough to give us three sets of my favourite brakes, their awesome MT7 Pros, to give away. So to be in with a chance of winning some, all you need to do is to head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash survey and fill in this year's listener survey. It's super simple to do, and it's only going to take a couple of minutes. It's a huge help to me to find out more about you lovely lot. So head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash survey, and we'll be choosing a winner of three sets of Magura MT7 Pro brakes at random on Thursday the 8th of June. If you find the podcast provides you with some value, maybe you've learned something that's helped your riding or your fitness, maybe it's got you stoked to go riding or to come back from an injury, or maybe it's just something to pass the time when you can't be riding your bike, then it would be awesome if you're able to do a little something in return to help the podcast continue and improve by setting up a small regular donation via my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Big thanks to Ben Hill who joined the list of lovely patrons this week. Also, if you want to represent the podcast, there's still downtime t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies available at downtimepodcast.com or slash shop. If you want a bit more downtime in your life, you can get my newsletter and you'll be provided with a bit of behind the scenes info on the podcast, some interesting bits and pieces from around the mountain bike world, some mini reviews of products I've been using and like, partner offers and more. You can do that over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. Otherwise, don't forget to follow the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. You can do that by hitting the button in your podcast app now, or there's buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. All the links for all of that are in the show notes for this episode on downtimepodcast.com. All right, we're getting pretty close to the 2023 Mountain Bike Downhill World Cup kicking off and recently ESO held a test event in Lourdes, France. Chris Kilmurray was there, so we had a catch up to find out what went on. Who was looking fast and can we read anything into the results? What were ESO testing and how are the changes received by the riders? Also, we chat about some of the team changes and what world class looks like as we head rapidly into the 2023 season. So without further ado, here's Chris Kilmurray. Chris Kilmurray, welcome back to the Downtime Podcast. It's been a long off season. How have you been? I've been good. And yes, it's been a long, long off season. (laughs) And it's still going. We've got, what, 40 days until the first Downhill World Cup. So, Yeah, long time to wait, but hopefully it'll be worth it. And it's it's a year of change for us as a sport. There's a lot's going on. And we recently had this test session out in Lords, so we'll jump straight into that. Um, first off, like, what was the purpose of the test session like, from your perspective, I guess, right? There's ESO are looking to to learn something and try some things, but there's also a benefit from the team rider coach perspective yeah i think um a multi-purposed test event um it probably wasn't as regimented or um you know representative of what the world cups are going to be as some of the teams and riders expected it was pretty pretty casual 
the local organizers in Lourdes also had their own kind of desires um, for the event because they originally should have had a World Cup and wanted to have a World Cup. But Ludenville got the, the nod instead, primarily because of the funicular issues in Lourdes to get riders to the top. Um, so basically, yeah, ESO got everyone there. It's a real good track, maybe potentially one of the best tracks on the World Cup circuit in terms of demands and speed and fun and enjoyment and all of that. Uh, one of the least enjoyable tracks when it gets wet, as it did twice during the test event. Uh, but basically, ESO wanted to get all the elite teams on site, so only the elite teams, uh, top 15 elite teams were invited. Um, get everyone on site, try out various versions of new taping and course marking strategies, um, get everyone who works for the ESO on the course side of things, on the media side of things, on the marketing side of things, get them all in one place with the, the teams and the managers, because obviously face-to-face communication and just general mingling and, and chit-chat is a lot more productive than a barrage of back-and-forth emails and text messages. Yeah. Um, and then on race day, not a race race day, we tried out um, the two-hour-ish turnaround, an hour 50 to two hours between semi-finals and finals, which is what they're going to be aiming for at the World Cups in terms of turnaround time. So if you're, say, protected, um, you qualify poorly, but you're protected, um, qualify poorly for your semis, then you're protected for your semis and your finals, you'll have a minimum of an hour, 50 or two hours. So they kind of worked the the start list of, you know, 40-odd riders, 30 elite men, 10 women, five juniors here, uh, worked that off that principle and slotted everyone's start times in and around that gap to see how everyone kind of coped with it and uh, dealt with it, really. And to get feedback then pretty much instantly, you know, on site, which is, was the, I think, really feedback across the board, uh, direct without any delay um, was was the main goal of the, of the operation. So there you go. Yeah, fair. Do you know why they only invited the elite teams? Was there a reason for that? Uh, the funicular being okay. one of the reasons i think it's a clear demarcation as well like there's elite teams there's non-elite teams and then there's everyone else if you invited everyone it would be a huge event it would be 45 or 50 teams if not more uh the uci rules that exist whereas if you have a registered uci trade team you don't need points to race the world cup so obviously there's a lot of people registering um trade teams because it's actually depending on what region and country you're in it's pretty difficult to get your 40 uci points to race a world cup so I think if they had had of had of invited everybody or left the invite open to interpretation, it would have been carnage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Unfortunately, the, the reality is that uh, the lift system in Lourdes is the funicular. It's about 150 people per hour if you really push the limits of the two centuries old machine. <laughs> and with your one hour 50 to two hour turnaround time between semis and finals, you would not make the potential to not make your semis is pretty high not make your finance yeah. is pretty high so and that's going to impact us this season at venues like Leger where we have two lifts one of them being very slow so there's I think there's some big sporting decisions to be made in terms of uh, track lengths for lift, for venues that don't have good infrastructure so there you go yeah or venues that maybe used to work and now won't work right? yeah totally yeah so I think now infrastructure in terms of having a good lift uh, ski lift to get people to the top is going to be pretty high priority I think yeah Going, yeah. going forward as they say yeah so th- there's this open invite to elite teams then and it seems to me looking from the outside it seems like a bit of a no-brainer right it's a chance to see where everyone's at it's a chance to experience the event in the hands of the new uh management and running to look at all this kept course tape stuff to have some potential for input and feedback not everyone that had an invite was there though no um, any thoughts on that a few of the teams didn't show up um Dorval, Comensal, Pivot, and maybe one or two others didn't show up. And I think the primary primary reason was because it clashed either with team camps or Sea Otter that were already penciled in. I think right. the, the test event was announced relatively late, like a lot of things. Um, so, yeah, I think it clashed with Sea Otter. And obviously a lot of teams haven't got to go to Sea Otter, which used to be, back in your day and my day, used to be always the, the kind of annual season opening event everyone would race slalom and it'd be sunny you'd see some new product everyone would get together and complain about how bad the downhill track was and whatever else uh, so teams haven't haven't really got to do that for probably the guts of a decade i'd say really so i think a lot of teams just took the opportunity to were like oh okay well we have the opportunity especially the teams that are you know heavily sponsored by american brands or whatever so and then on the flip side of that a lot of the teams took the opportunity to do the test event primarily because of the track not even because mm-hmm. they wanted to test out 
or see anything that the ESO had to bring. They were just like, oh, Lord, with tape. Let's let's go, you know? Yeah, okay. And I guess you've got like all that backup of medics, marshals. Like yeah. it's the, the safest way to get up to speed on a World Cup level track, I suppose. Yeah, probably the only way this season where you'll get uh, whistles, tape, uh, an amazing track, uh, an evacuation plan, all of those things all good to go on site you know so yeah everyone took a lot of people just grabbed the bull by the horn so to speak and, and got stuck in and a lot of the not all of the riders but it started to rain on, the, on practice day uh just after lunch and a lot of people sat it out to see if it was going to rain more and then they'd head back up uh or see if it didn't rain enough to actually make it wet wet and then they were just going to call it a day but in the end it rained so much that the marshals got pulled off the hill at 3 p.m instead of five okay. But a lot of a lot of riders and teams managed to squeeze in quite a few wet runs, so you could definitely see who had come to the event really. I think maybe mentally uh, or organisationally prepared to be like, no matter what, we're doing X number of runs, you know. So yeah, yeah. I heard Loic say it was pretty useful actually that it was wet conditions and dry conditions because they got to test a load of different stuff, tire yeah. setups, like look at that, you know, transitional conditions as well, I guess, when you're transitioning from dry to wet and wet back to dry. So yeah, totally. if you're ready for it, lots to be learned. Well, I think especially now with the new schedule where we're going to, like we're going to have some crazy, <laughs> the way the, the new schedule works out, it's basically, you know, uh, three complete days of, of riding for the elites. Um, they'll have junior racing in between practice and uh, time training. So you'll have a huge gap in between there, between, or between qualifying, sorry. Um, so junior qualifying in between practice and time training and then junior racing in between practice and qualifying runs. So you're going to have like five or six hours between, which the elite men never really had before. The elite women did. The elite men never had five or six hours of not seeing the track and then having to go and execute. So literally conditions-wise, especially with weather, anything can happen. So I think, yeah, being adaptable now is going to be even more important than it was previously to the point where yeah. it's, uh, it's bordering on a different sport, like a different discipline. Kind of like F1, but it's it's sprint day now, which is which is just <laughs> yeah. carnage. We're going to have our own sprint style day where you don't have time to technically, tactically, or mentally prepare like you would have done in the past. Like to build for the crescendo. Now we're going to be in this just repeat, repeat scenario. So yeah, I think uh, getting whatever tires on and whatever kit on to get out there and get fast runs in the wet was, was pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. What was the feedback like from riders on that tight turnaround then between semis and and finals? Because it's the first time they've gone and done that, especially for the younger riders that weren't involved when we used to have qualies mm -hmm. on a on a race day. I think by that it was it was neutral is what it was. It's the case of like we don't have a choice. This for now that's the schedule. That's how the racing is going to be. Some of the riders, um, maybe some that weren't in the, in attendance at the test event, are a bit more vocal about it, but disliking <laughs> semifinals. Uh, a lot of the riders just are like pretty neutral. They're just like yeah, it's maybe not how I'd like to to race but it's what we have to do for, for now anyway, at least for 2023. So they're just kind of just going to get on with it. And I think when you actually do it, even though it's not ideal in terms of cool down nutrition, reflecting on your run, working out how to get faster, where to get faster, how to win a race, it's not as a clear cut process as it was previously. I think when the riders actually did it, they were like, oh, it's not too different to just smashing laps and training like I always do you know and i saw some riders did two complete warm-ups some riders did like portions of warm-ups for semis and then a, a more complete one or an even shorter one for finals depending on how they felt so i think there's you know in my position as a coach and any of the coaches out there there's there's a lot of experience and evidence you know scientifically driven stuff that we could lean on in terms of helping riders prepare and design warm-ups and stuff but really we're going to have to feel it out we're going to have to feel it out based on the type of fatigue is created per each track, the type of fatigue and the type of feelings that are created, you know, for each venue and each back to back event and that sort of stuff. So I think kind of like the, well, like the lean on F1 again, as an example, like the teams for F1 figured out with this sprint day, which I've never done before. Uh, we're going to have to figure out bits and bobs um, as we go. And I think the Testament was a nice introduction to that. Yeah. So I guess the, the better staffed and resource teams are the ones that are potentially going to benefit there's more more heads working on the problem there's more resource available to cover uh issues with you know things being compressed like i've heard teams talk about needing two bikes set up ready for racing because if there's an issue in semis you're probably not going to have time to fix a bike or rebuild things before the finals for example yeah i think in terms of like team manager coach physio whatever 
it's not going to change a whole pile other than you have extra bodies in, in different places, which means like the Swiss cheese effect of, of defenses, you know, like if you have enough layers of Swiss cheese, things, things don't slide <laughs> through the holes. You get through hole one and two, but not four or five. Um, so I think, yeah, having more staff for your Swiss cheese defenses will always, you know, crop up as, as a bonus, as a plus down the line. But I think it's on the mechanical side of things where maybe, you know, teams are going to designate a mechanic to stay in the pits and one mechanic to stay at the top, as opposed to the mechanics traveling around like they normally would have done to stick with their rider. So things are going to have to be more fluid in terms of rider mechanic relationships, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, teams that have a dedicated mechanic for a junior rider, that mechanic is freed up for race day for the elite riders so they can stay in the pits or stay at the top. So I think, yeah, there's, there's lots to figure out. Um, the teams that There is teams that have considerably more resources than others, but no team have a staff of 50 like MotoGP or F1 or whatever else. So... Yeah, uh, more. It's interesting. Yeah, it's going to make it potentially more of a team sport. It's always a team sport, but it's going to make it even more of a team sport. Yeah, interesting. So, talk a little bit about some of the the taping trials. Right, they were te- they were trying different taping approaches in different parts of the track. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Um, it was kind of not clear, kind of clear as we went. It was originally we thought it was very distinct taping. Uh, different taping changes per per section that we give feedback on. In the end, it was a little bit more mixed than that. Uh, but basically, they had two types of new flexible poles, which are about 80 centimeters high, I think, or even less. Um, mm-hmm. One of them, the red ones, um, for this event, they'll all be the same color, this kind of green. The, the color of downhill, the gravity sports now, is this kind of light greenish, yeah. uh, yellowy color, um, which might not be great for colorblind people at high speeds. But anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> Um, so yes yeah, so we had these these poles uh, some of them flexible at the bottom some of them flexible in the middle and then instead of tape there's this mesh kind of potato bag sack material which won't, yeah. which won't flap in the wind which is one of the primary reasons which is good and, and it's pretty extensible flexible so if you do blow off course instead of you stretching it and snapping it and it getting wrapped up and stuff it'll probably stretch enough that you'll stop uh, or it'll stretch and then pull the markers out of the ground, which potentially will lead to other issues because the bottom of the markers is obviously quite pointy. Uh, but by and large, we're looking at a lot of positives compared to previous. So previously, there was no official course marking other than the tape was sponsored tape, Shimano and Mercedes-Benz. Um, Shimano for non-TV sections, Mercedes-Benz for televised sections, in case people haven't figured that one out. Um, and then normally it was uh, ski poles for markers, so a meter to a meter 20 high slalom stakes. Um, some of the venues we had uh, didn't have ski racing nearby, so they had other plastic poles. Some of them, like Leo Gang or Lenzerheide, had a you know an excess of mattings for snow cannons and ski poles, so that's what we used. So it was kind of at the whim of the organizer, whatever they had in stock. Some of it was good, often just too high, hitting hands is what we had a big problem with previously, or having to use tape to bend the pole out of the way, mm-hmm. and then the tape would move a bit more, and then the pole would move, and then you'd have the question of whether is the pole or the tape marking the track? Can I bunny hop the inside? Can I ride? If it gets knocked out, who cares? No, 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 no. So we had quite a bit of uh, ambiguity in marking in the past, whereas now the goal is to have less ambiguity. And by and large, the feedback was was quite positive. There's definitely things to work out, but I think Rory Cunningham, who's doing the sporting side of things um, to make events, you know, fair, equal and consistent, um, he was taking feedback from everyone, from us coaches, track side, from team managers, from riders, especially. And the feedback was, was by and large positive. So I think they're going to go with the the small course markers that are uh, flexible at the base, not in the middle, uh, and use uh, the netting slash tape uh, where, where needed uh, and then run markers very close together uh, where the tape isn't really needed or warranted warranted um so that's it's going to be a bit of an, a bit of an adaptation curve i think because visually if you've got a breaking point you're probably and the tape is say perpendicular to your breaking point you're probably yeah. using that fixed marker as part of your your time to contact basically and that's how the brain organizes how hard and when to break and that's something you kind of build up the in your short-term memory build up the experience of as you go through practice runs hence why you need practice and then that's what gets super finely tuned for you know your race runs basically so with less practice more racing strange course marking i think we're going to have a little a little small adaptation curve and then the newer newer thing was the apex pads which is these huge pads that are going to be used to demarcate 
to create chicanes or mark apexes or just block off certain areas of track. So like the feedback in them was like, they're odd. Yeah. The, the base is flexible, but it's like a metal base. So if the pad pops off, there could be some safety issues. Um, line of sight was an issue. If you're coming from slightly below it and the next bit of track is flatter, slightly above you, then there's some obviously line of sight issues where you can't see the next line. But by and large, it's just like having a big boulder in the track. You're just going to learn learn where to look and when to get around it. So I think yeah, as long as, like, the, you know, my feedback to Rory Cunningham and, and everyone at TSO, along with a lot of the riders' feedback, was as long as they're willing to implement our feedback uh, on site for each track, as in uh, this, does, this does or doesn't work for reason X, Y, or Z, then everything should be pretty rosy, I think. By and large, yeah. positive changes. Yeah, the apex pad seems like an odd one to me because I thought a lot of the talk around the changes in the taping of the tracks was for line of sight visibility for TV cameras so that there's not kind of tape getting in the way. Yeah. I guess it's a lost revenue stream and I'm wondering if these apex pads are a way for them to put some sponsor advertising back onto the track. And they do look kind of cool, but I worry that for the TV product, maybe they will look at how, you know all the lines of sight and stuff, but it looked, some of the imagery that I saw from the weekend, it looked like the pads were sort of blocking what you might want to see as a, as a fan, as a spectator. Yeah, like it definitely, a lot, a lot of debate to be had around it still, I think. They're not natural looking. It's a natural sport. So you'd rather see rocks and boulders. Um Will they be used for sponsorship stuff down the line? You'd imagine yes. Like it'd be crazy to have a, you know, a, a 0.8 of a meter squared or more lump, you know, 10 of them or 15 of them on a track and not use them for advertising. You know, will will they have electronic boards in them in the future so you, the rider's name comes up or whatever else as they come past? They might do. I think there's, there's lots of potential positives or innovative ways to use them. Uh, but for now, they're designed as a sporting feature to, to really clearly mark the track. Uh, they're not in the rule book. The rule book clearly says straw bales, for example, are banned because they're a large lump, similar to the yep. Apex pad. Uh, and because the Apex pads aren't in the rule book, um, technically you, you can ride over them. You, you won't want to ride over them, but I think in, in my interpretation of the rules, you could ride over them. So I think a lot of the feedback was that, you know, we need, the, if the Apex pads are going to stay, they need to be defined in the rule book as, as a, a track feature that needs a, a particular rule to go with them, you know. Yeah. How hefty are they? Like if you clipped a pedal on one, is it going to cause you an issue? Um, it potentially, yeah. If you clip it at the wrong way with your, with, your, with your weight and momentum in the wrong place, for sure, it'll rip you clean off the bike. But they're pretty movable. They've got a bit of give. So a lot of the, you know, if you clip it with your foot or your pedal, the energy from you is going to go into the material a little bit. It's not just going to rebound straight away. They're, they bend a bit. They've got a flexible base. Um, and just like a rock, you're probably not, you're going to try and not clip it, you know? <laughs> really so yeah. interesting yeah, one. I think the idea is that there'll be about 50 of them on site at the races you know in in the truck that brings all of the the, the fixtures and fittings um but they'll probably only use up to 10 at an event that kind of thing okay but they'll have replacements for breakages and to keep them clean looking for tv i assume so, yeah. yeah i think the infrastructure is there i think even in terms of polling they had x number of poles um at the test event and they're going to have you know upwards of many thousands in the truck for the actual races so because obviously they need duplicate sets to go to the next venue before racings before we head to leo gang from lenser they're going to have to already be leo gang setting up you know so yeah cool i didn't i didn't see this particularly well but it looked like the finish gantry was different as well it yeah got like two big tv screens either side of the track yeah so two uh big digital screens either side of the gantry and no uh horizontal fixture yeah, cross member yeah, cross members yeah. done because obviously the rider disappears on the tv image for you know a tenth of a second ten tenths yeah. second whatever um so yeah getting rid of that obviously doesn't visually look as much of a finish line but mm -hmm. the, the actual digital screens each side reminded me quite a lot of what they're using at alpine skiing the last couple of seasons where the riders the riders headshot pops up with their their stern looking headshot their name their statistics and all to go with it um, and the way that the timing was delivered, so the, the split times and the finish time, the way that was delivered to the people at the finish line was a little bit more intuitive than it has been in the past. So I think by and large, it should be, should be pretty cool. Yeah. Steps in a good direction. And that I trialed like a rider signing thing for fans that are on site as well. I saw, saw something along those lines. Yeah. I know they want um, to improve the fan experience. Yeah. Fan experience is definitely going to go up, but it's obviously going to be a bit of a, 
I'm not sure exactly how many World Cup riders are going to actually be asked to attend, whether it's based off world ranking or social media popularity or how it's going to work. But yeah, I think there's going to be a press conference um, on uh, practice day one uh, for the elites. There'll be a press conference that morning from nine to 10. And then there, there'll be a signing session as well at some stage in the week. And then I think there's like a central uh, media portal plan. So uh, teams team media people, whatever else can say all rider X and Y are available at these times for interviews, TV, newspapers, whatever else. So yeah, they're trying to get a little bit more organized as a central point of contact, you know, which is, which is cool. It's good because yeah. it's what sports needs. It's what a lot of sports have. So it's what, it's what we need. Yeah. It's good stuff. Any, any other like changes that were obvious to that event? Uh, not really. The timing company is the same, which is good uh, as previous. Uh, UCI commissars and that sort of stuff is unchanged. So actually, there was a UCI, one of the first people I saw on track first morning of practice. I was up there pretty early. Um, and one of the first people I saw was uh, an Italian lady who's a commissar. She's been at a lot of the World Cups over the years. And I was like, I know that face. And I was like, I know that jacket. That, that's an official UCI jacket. And she had a clipboard. I was like, what's she doing here? And that's when it dawned on me that actually this was this was actually a race, even though it wasn't pegged as a race. It was going to have a star list. Um, for I suppose for legal and insurance reasons, they had to run it as a UCI event. Um, and obviously, I think... ESO wanted the commissars and UCI there um, to see if the commissars would pick up on anything that would be considered illegal or not above board in terms of, you know, the sporting side of things. So in the end, it was it was a race that wasn't a race. That definitely was a race. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, we should talk about results. First off, do they, do they actually mean anything? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I think I'd already said I did a little article for Miss Ben Summers um, and I'd already said that the actual the times maybe don't mean as much as the positions, but you can the positions will probably give you an idea as to who's who's you know prepared at the moment. So that mm -hmm. doesn't mean people won't be prepared in another two months' time or six weeks' time for Lenzerheide, but I think you can kind of see who was really keen to just punch out fast laps and who was able to get up to speed quickly and execute regardless of conditions. The actual times themselves probably had a little bit of risk aversion involved. You know, it was pretty. Like you saw Jordan Williams crash in his finals run as quick as qualifier. It could go really wrong really quick. So, Yeah, I was going to say the times looked, based on previous races there, they looked a, a bit of a chunk off beak. Really, I didn't see the tracks. So I don't know if there were changes that were causing that or conditions. But well, yeah, I guess people weren't. actually faster taping-wise, which is one of our, it was some feedback we gave to uh, ESO. Uh, there's a couple of couple of spots that had been taped tighter, like little pinch points to slow things down, a key sections um, by the UCI technical delegate the year before at the World Cup, and they weren't done this year. And actually, they were the previous version of the track was slightly better, a little bit safer, a little bit more nuanced in terms of line choice. So it, it was genuinely it was just slower time wise because it got wet pretty quick. I think you know second yeah. practice run everyone was up to speed. It caught me off guard. Dad Cam was still in my pocket. I was like, oh, I'm going to wait until, you know, third run and then the afternoon session to start, you know, stacking clips and doing some analysis and get, get quality, quality footage to get quality information, to get quality data, you know. And then second run, I was just like camera everywhere. I was like, oh, my God, everyone's already trying to win this thing. You know, it was crazy how, how quickly up to speed everyone was, primarily because the track at that stage, early in practice when it was bone dry, uh, it had a bit of grip in it. It wasn't as dry as finals 2022. Um, and it was basically the same track so everyone was just gasp straight away yeah. yeah fair and one of the things that we shared a concern about when we spoke me you and nico when they first announced the format with semi-finals and stuff was that the fastest time of the weekend might well come from the semis and not from the final for various reasons that did happen at this test event yeah. it was about five seconds quicker than tebow's not winning time on the on the race run um what do you think that was down to? Was that weather? Was it track degradation or was it just Jordan Williams? Um, track de degradation was not a factor uh, in any way, shape or form. Weather was a huge factor. It got wet mm -hmm. and it proceeded to get wetter um, about 10 to 12 riders in. So almost halfway, let's say, into the, into the start list of semifinals for the elite men. It started to get kind of wet, wet, let's say. Um Jordan Williams was also a factor because he was riding extremely well and was very happy to risk all of the biscuit. <laughs> Clearly, um, riding well, riding confident, has definitely gelled with the new bike and the Olin suspension and everything else. 
So, yeah, definitely him wanting to do a good job was a big factor. He also got, not lucky, but he was right at the cusp of when things started to get a little bit wetter. And you can see that if you check out if you check out the start list compared to the semi-finals result, you'll see maybe four or five riders who started early in semis were quite high in the results sheet in semis because they got slightly better conditions. And then people like Amory and Loic and stuff were quite far back in the semis results because it got wet enough that you were questioning everything, really. Questioning yeah. the first rocks more than anything else. So basically, you come out of the start gate, do that small little jump over some over a wall, go underneath the tunnel for the funicular, and you do basically a double right-hander. And as you come out under the tunnel again and get yourself straight, you head towards the rocks, and they're shiny. And at the best of times, they're not grippy. And when they're wet, they're most certainly not in the slightest way grippy at all. So I think even from that point onwards, people would have been like, oh, do I, don't I? You know, do I shut it down? Do I do I risk it and see how grippy this is initially? You know, do I get scared and then back off or do I keep going? So I think, yeah, if some buts. But, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think we can learn, though, that those two male juniors coming up are not messing about. I mean, Jackson's already won two national championships in the off-season in countries he's not from. Jordan won the first <laughs> national more here. more in... more sleeves, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Jordan won the first national here. Yeah. Jackson was only two weeks, I think, off of a ruptured appendix and four days in hospital. Yeah. Still on medication and took second, I think, in the final. I mean, w- what... These guys are really stepping things up, eh? Yeah, it's super impressive, I think. And that's, I think maybe that having been at the event and not really worried about the not a race, it was a race results. Um, watching people's demeanor, their approach to practice, how they dealt with turnarounds, how they dealt with the short practice period with the changeable conditions and all that stuff. Jackson looked kind of not himself in practice. Definitely looked a little bit, little bit weak, just a little bit kind of, uh, I, I don't know what word I don't know if we have a word to describe it but he just didn't really look himself because he's you know didn't have much bike time and he's definitely probably still a little bit weak from from the appendix issues but then <clears throat> once the clock was on he executed again as him and Jordan did all last year you know especially Jackson last year uh, phenomenal like you can't I think everyone's afraid everyone's worried all the elite racers are worried because J&J Jordan and Jackson are, are coming for you you know phenomenal yeah, well, phenomenal just the, the ability to practice to deal with unknowns and expectations and everything else and just execute time and again is it's stunning. You know, we've not really seen it. Troy and Loic did it from kind of did it from juniors to elites, but it was a different, totally different field back then. Uh, Finn could have done it, but didn't. Um, and here we are. Thibaut yeah. kind of did it, but not to the same level as this. It seems like yeah, you know, so it's yeah, it's going to be super interesting. Yeah, two weeks out of hospital for Jackson, and then a complete bike and team change for Jordan, and they just seem to brush it off and crack on. I'm I'm kind of interested in both of those two teams actually because they're sort of uber teams, right? Both the specialized team and the syndicate team could like lock down the results sheets. Maybe not so much in the in the women's for specialized, obviously, but Nina's got a very good chance uh, on the syndicate side. What are your thoughts on this, like? uber team thing like is it is it a really positive breeding ground for performance or is there a risk to having so many good riders stacked into these big big teams it's yeah honestly i i don't have a clear good answer for you it's going to be like team specific for sure um like specialized obviously have three top elite males finn was arguably the fastest man last year when everything stayed upright um only guy to win you know pretty much every sector in a weekend so qualies and finals last year in Monsanan the only one he didn't win was the last sector uh, without a chain in finals which he probably would have smashed if he had had a chain Um, so Finn is like you know one of the one of the guys to beat potentially Um, Jordan's obviously Jordan so we're going to see some big things and and Loic is he he is five time world champion and of all the men who can elevate for a race day there is there is that man you know so that team, I think, I don't know how how do you approach it as team manager? How do you how do you do you make sure everyone works together? Do you leave everyone to work in their own little micro groups within the team? Syndicates a little bit less, maybe um has maybe a little bit less of a challenge initially, because they're all they've all been working together for a long time, whereas Jordan's new and specialized. 
Uh, they've got Nina, who's not in the male category, so that helps kind of keep things a little bit apart and different, or the riders can help Nina so they don't have to help their male teammates or whatever. But I think the whole, yeah, yeah the, from the management perspective, helping throughout a season, as especially as a series overall progresses and people slot into their kind of where their pace is leaving them in terms of points and where they're who they're battling with at the races and who they're battling with for the overall, whether they're battling for overall titles. Once all that starts to unfold, then the management side of things will have to be thought about. So, yeah, like you said, Uber teams, if everyone ends up on the podium for the weekend, everyone's everyone's best friend. If one guy ends up on the podium and no one else does, well, then I don't know who's anyone's friend, you know? So I'm not sure. Yeah, a big... A lot, a lot to ask for. And even even like, you know, on my side of things with FMD, we have Phoebe Gale, who's an elite female now. So she's moved up along with Gracie Hemstreet and Isabella Yankova and Jenna Hastings as four, you know, super fast junior girls who will potentially take four spots in, in the 10 qualifiers for finals and four spots from other girls who are very used to being in the finals for the last however many years. So, you know, FMD have two elite females for the first time ever. A lot of teams have you know, multiple riders in the same category that they never had before or have infrastructure or goals or whatever that, you know, that are competing that they've never had before. So I think, yeah, the sport's growing and here we are. Claws at dawn, handbags yeah. at dawn. <laughs> it's good to see. And yeah, let's talk a little bit about the women's racing because there weren't that many elite women there, were there? Any ideas why? I know Miriam's been suffering from concussion again, so she wasn't attending. Yeah, so we were missing uh, Miriam. And Camille Ballanche as, as the two, you know, top females we were missing. We were missing Jenna Hastings as a junior coming through. Um, two elites. We had Gracie Hemstreet. We had Phoebe. We had Nina Hoffman. We had Marine Cabiru. So we, we had a pretty decent feed. We had Valley Hull, who was definitely the fastest on track during the week. And her first two splits before she crashed in semi uh, semifinals showed that. We had Tane back riding really, really well. She had a huge crash on, on race morning. So sat out race day, but she hadn't. The plan wasn't really to do the time runs anyway. It was just to get quality bike time on a good track. So we weren't missing a huge amount of women. You know, we were missing Veronica Vidman, Michaela Parton, uh, Millie Onset was there. So we had, you know, potentially say five girls who should, could qualify uh, for mm -hmm. the finals uh, who weren't there. So we, we still had a good representation of the ladies' field there, you know. Okay. And Gracie took the win. I think uh, she said she wasn't really pushing. I know Nina had a little bit of a rest in the tape at one point. Um, was there much to learn from from the racing there, do you think? I mean, it's no, good not, to see. Not from the racing, to be totally honest. Um, more so just from on track time, seeing who was riding well, seeing who looked balanced. I think sometimes the, the differences, as you see with the times in the ladies' field, the differences are more noticeable time-wise between say first and fifth uh, on the podium and first and 10th and first and second, even sometimes. And what's creating those differences is often easier to see on track than with the men. With the men, you might not see any difference. So you might have a practice hero that looks insane in practice and then finishes P15. Um, whereas the ladies, you can kind of see who's, you know, who's getting flustered, breaking too early, too late, who's not riding consistently on the lines, who's struggling with this section or this jump or whatever else. So the level is a little bit, the raw level is a little bit different. So you see differences easier, uh, which means that, you know, that what we saw on track was probably more interesting than the results sheet. Okay. Interesting. And Valley was a standout performer. Like it feels like she's in a really good spot. Seems to be in a good headspace. Things working out well with her, like training relationship with Cecile Ravenel. She seems to be having a good time in the off season getting some EWS in and putting in very, very convincing results in EWS as well. So the yeah. fitness is clearly strong. Yeah, well, definitely. I think the, the the riding ability is strong. I wouldn't infer fitness because it had the EWS banner on it, personally. Um, okay. Fitness is task-specific, I always remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more, fair. More chat on. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, clearly she was riding super well from pretty early on in practice, as was Nina. Nina's progressed a lot. Nina's progressed more than anyone in the last while, maybe progress in a different way to Camille Ballanche. Okay. Um, so how would you look at the differences between those two's progression then? Uh, Nina's has been more market in terms of what you see on track. It used to be very erratic on track in terms of you might get a good day, you might get a bad Nina on a day. Um, there might be weight all over the shop into or out of a corner. There might, you know, they're just the actual mechanics of riding could be quite mm -hmm. um, sporadic, let's say, with, with Nina in historically, whereas now it's a lot more consistent. 
Okay. And that's leading to just more consistent practice, which is leading to more consistent learning, which is leading to more consistent runs on the clock, which is leading to better results. Whereas Cami is just kind of like, not much has changed except the times are really fast. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, obviously lots has changed for Cami as well. So um, I think Cami is, you know, a behind the scenes rider who's extremely astute in terms of building race runs. So you maybe you don't see as much on on track, or it's not as noticeable on track at times. But that's irrelevant, really, because the the proof is in the pudding with Cami, you know. So it's it's been a yeah different trajectory, which is which is cool to see. Which is really cool to see. Yeah, and definitely cool to see some of those other women stepping up from uh, junior into elite. So like you say, Gracie, Isabella, and uh, Phoebe. There's going to be a really strong field. Like those ten spots are not going to be easy to come by. I think. Yeah, I think like the raw pace there. The junior girls were were quite far back on Nina and Valley's sector times, um, by and large, uh, for the weekend. But Nina uh, and Valley, less so Marine for some reason, but Nina and Valley definitely got up to speed really quick. You can see they just they kind of slotted in. It was like twenty twenty two again. They just slotted into a World Cup. Here I go. So the experience level, you can see the difference between the males, between the the elite and the junior females coming through. But I think in terms of raw ability and pace and that sort of thing, given enough time, and that time is probably only going to be a race or two, I think. I think you're going to start to see those junior girls coming through, Isabella, Gracie, Phoebe, uh, and Jenna Hastings. You're going to start to see them chipping away at some really strong sector times and then eventually some really strong race results. So, yeah, it's it's really exciting. We finally got like, we're going to have what? I'd say we have 12 to 14 women for 10 final spots, maybe. Okay. Is what I'm saying. That's sort yeah. of bar- bracket, you know. Yeah. So you got Louisiana as well, the Scottish Kiwi transplant. Um, yeah. He's super capable as well, but we've not really seen her race very much. Shanna Hearns come coming to do a full season as well from Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole host of American and, and British girls that will probably come to some of or all of the races. So yeah, it's going to be really really interesting. And for the first time ever, really. Uh, Isabella Yankova, Phoebe Gale, Gracie Hemstreet, Jenna Hastings, um, Louisiana, some of the other girls have actual support, genuine factory support. You know, yeah, a mechanic, a dedicated mechanic, team staff, a physio, a coach, maybe a chef, a team manager, uh, two bikes, lots of tires, lots of wheels, all the things you need. So there you go. It's cool. Yeah, it's good to see. It's good to see. And then one rider that I thought was particularly impressive uh, from the weekend, and I, I shouldn't be surprised to be impressed, but Greg Minar had that huge crash in Val de Sol. Must have been a pretty scary injury, some time spent in a neck brace. Not the youngest guy on the circuit. He had off-season surgery, I think, on a wrist or a hand or something. Very li- little bike time, yet he's still up there, sitting fifth and sixth at all the splits, apart from the final sector where he dropped back to tenth. But it's pretty incredible hey to see the the hunger the thirst for it that greg still has even after those issues in his off season yeah still um tweaking every knob possible on the bicycle like <laughs> relentless tweaking the king of tweak uh so yeah what can you say like he, the, the there is only one greg Minar. you know he does exactly what it says in the tin the the tin of greg Minar does exactly what it says which is race bikes i race bikes and greg races bikes and i think you know if you actually just like boil it down to the fact that Greg races bikes, he doesn't show up on the start line to, to participate. He shows up to compete. And that, that's that you can see it in practice. You can see it in testing. You can see it in his knob twisting and tweaking. You can see it in the gray hairs in his mechanical aisle. <laughs> like the guy wants to win, not even do well. He just wants to win. So you can clearly see that, you know, the intention yeah. is there. So yeah, pretty phenomenal. You know, he'll, he'll be there or thereabouts. He's going to have a tough time with his, his, far smaller teammates <laughs> for sure but um yeah can't what can you say greg Miller? yeah there you go mad Incredible. i think it was a thumb um surgery he had uh okay yeah collateral ligament potentially in the thumb skiers thumb injury i think that's what it was like a leftover injury from a long time ago and they often crop up as calcification of of um ligaments and tendons and and arthritis as, as you age a bit so probably quite to be expected kind of injury you know but the fact that yeah, ne- neck surgery rehab, um, hand especially especially these two digits on your hand, you know index and thumb. Once you injure them, mountain biking becomes a lot more difficult than you think. Take these these guys for granted, you know. 
So yeah, can't can't say much. It's going to be super interesting to see once we'd have to knock out a qualies and a semis and a finals over two days. Uh, how Greg's experience and his race head will, you know, where that's going to leave him in the results sheet. Yeah, never count him out. Never count the man out. What was the general feedback then from the riders? Were people like pretty positive about things? It's the first time, like we say, that the riders and the ESO have all been together face-to-face in what was basically a, a dry run of the event coming up. Yeah, I think by and large, um, it was it was positive more than negative um, or a lot of neutral feedback, a lot of like, yes, this is okay as long as you're conti- you, know, you continue to take our feedback as, as we progress through the season and we work on on details or small issues that crop up so as long as, long as every, the communication channels are open and wide everyone was, was yeah super positive and the ESO staff were, were you know walking around the pits and on the track you know from the media staff uh, like who we were going to do the live footage like Rick McLaughlin to some of the marketing staff to the sporting staff to Rory and we had a whole I think there was four or five people on track in terms of track staff who were going to be at the majority of the races so most of the staff were there the key staff and they were mingling and walking and doing their doing their jobs all week and everyone was I think yeah by and large positive yeah good excited to see how it unfolds in Lenzerheide in a few weeks time before we wrap up let's just chat about a few other bits and pieces cover some uh, some team moves and changes of uh, some of the bigger ones. There wasn't a huge amount of shifting about this off-season. Uh, one of the the moves that sort of interested me was Millie Johnset to Canyon Factory Racing. It's cool to see Millie getting that like top-tier factory support. It's going to be interesting to see how she progresses with, with that support and a bit of Uncle Fab's time. Yeah, it's going to be really, really interesting to see how how that because she's had great support throughout her career really um but now she's the the lead female on a top team you know and a team that's never had a a, a top female before so you know Tanya's obviously has her own team riding under the canyon banner which is different so now it's yeah the canyon factory racing which uh is the you know the factory team uh, has has millie so it's going to be super super interesting but like we said the ladies field is stacked like literally stacked so even we're potentially going to get to the point where a couple of mistakes in a run or a single mistake in a run is going to leave you you know not getting the points you're previously used to getting so it's going to be oh, so it's exciting i think for all the ladies across the board you know for for everyone it's going to be super exciting yeah definitely and then ollie Zwa moving from uh union over to fmd it's uh it's cool to see another like big podium contender uh, under the FMD banner. Yeah, uh, unofficial official fastest time of the weekend maybe in Lourdes. Okay. I think uh, first day of practice there was there was timed runs happening all the time which wasn't really communicated but basically the transponders were on. Uh, timing gate at the start was sometimes open sometimes closed so accuracy to the tenth of a second I'm not so sure about uh, but he definitely had the fastest time before the rain as far as I remember so the boy the boy is going good uh, he's gelled really well um, it took him a while to, to get on, on top of you know the change from the Santa Cruz to the Canyon but he's gelled super well the last couple of months I think he said and he's really enjoying having a, a bigger team structure you know Un- Union had great sponsors but had a, a really small team structure around it uh, so yeah. now he's kind of like oh I can literally just sit down between between runs you know i can sit down in the evenings i can sit down in the mornings i can sit down between runs i can just rest and regenerate between having to go do my job so i think he's yeah definitely a man to watch this season it's going to be super exciting and cool for fmd to have a an elite male um that's really you know that's really capable of top maybe top fives even top tens you know he got quite a few top tens last year so it's another kind of unknown quantity really as we go to this new format you know it's really exciting yeah, definitely. Another one that stands out is uh, Luke and Remy Meyersmith onto Giant. Um, both riders with a lot of potential, some incredible results last season um, and already this year in uh, the enduro side of things. Thoughts on that move? Yeah, um, interesting move out of Giant. Giant, I think, have a new, new staff structure, new management on the team. Um, really excited to see what those boys can do. I think they're they're testing out or they ha- they have a new a new bike, a mullet um, giant rain or whatever it's called uh, right. so they got some new product coming both of those kids are in like incredibly fast in terms of raw pace there's probably n- not many out there that are as fast as those two and they're slightly different as well Remy and Luke have different different style on track different approach to, to riding and racing it looks like um, so yeah another mega exciting I think if we like have the same conversation we're having 
uh, about the women if we have it about the men in terms of the available places for finals like 30 men going through the finals um scary there's a lot of talent eh? there's a lot of talent in that field and we, we spoke about it briefly in lord among some of the riders i coach but you know if you have a like how do you approach the the mental and the 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 training battle of if you have a couple of bad weekends just for whatever reason and you don't make it from semis to finals you know all of a sudden you're not a finals guy even though you have all the ability all of the support all of the speed whatever needed but just a couple of things don't go your way or you poorly execute a run and all of a sudden you're not there so yeah super interesting yeah the pressure's definitely ramped up right there's no there's nowhere to hide if you want to get in the top 30 yeah absolutely not yeah and I suppose those Luke and Remy having having you know a, a big team support structure around them which they kind of I suppose they had with the propane team last year but they're, they're definitely like you know the the top riders uh, along with Remy on that team now so yeah any other team moves out there that you think are kind of significant that have piqued your interest Good question. Huh? Really, really good question. Uh, the Gen S team hasn't really changed. So Chris Grice has moved from the gravity, um, specialized gravity, so the, the semi-factory team, let's call it, uh, to Gen S, which is generation specialized. And Isabella Yankova is there as well. So they didn't bring Isabella onto the the, the gravity team. Uh, but what they have done is increase the infrastructure. Uh, so they got a lot, it seems okay. like quite a bit of money behind the Gen S team, which is really cool to see because they've got a lot of young riders who you know will be World Cup ready in another two or three years on that program? So they're really looking you know long term, um, and then the, the new crop of juniors as well, junior men and junior women. The junior women there doesn't seem to be a huge depth like there was the last few years. So that's going to be interesting to see who does come through and who who's fast. Uh, and the junior the junior men category as well. Um, a lot of the teams. So you got like Hugo Marini, second year junior, who's one of the fastest in Lord, super super fast, and he as a youth rider, so as like a a cadet they call it in French. In France, uh, he was putting times down that are were as fast as the elites. And then his first year junior, first year junior was was a struggle for him for many reasons, I think. So now he seems to be a bit more settled, really gelled with that new commensal finally. So he's going to be a standout one. Uh, Rudy Icorn on FMD. Um, there's a couple of fast French kids coming through. A kid called mm-hmm. Milan, who's really really fast. Uh, there's the Alran brothers, Till and Max. I'm not sure if they're World Cup ready yet. They might have one more year. Off the top of my head, I can't remember, but there's a, there's a lot of fast French kids coming through as well. So I think the, the the talent feeder, as we were talking about Jackson and Jordan being so fast and coming through and being able to execute right the sharp end from the get-go, we've got, it seems like another crop, at least on the, elite, the, the male side, another crop of fast juniors coming through. So how they develop and how they deal with the... They've got a different schedule now at the World Cup. They're going to practice the day of track walk and then qualify and race. So they're going to kind of be apart from the main show more so than say Jackson, Jordan and the other juniors were the previous years. So whether that's going to impact on how quickly they develop and how they transition to elites is kind of to be seen, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Lots of stuff going on. Mm. Now I'm going to ask a question that might be a whole podcast's worth of answer. So <laughs> I don't know if we, sh- if we should wade into this, but I'm going to, let's see what you thought your thoughts are. I was going to ask, what does world cup preparation look like this off season? Sorry, world class preparation looked like this off season, and do you think that's changed much from, let's say, last year? Like, are teams doing things differently or doing more as a result of progress or the changes to the the event structure? Um, I think one of the things I have kind of noticed is that maybe budgets are a little bit tighter here and there. It seems so. While, yeah. while teams are still spending huge amounts of money, because just getting people around the world isn't cheap, um, I think you know the teams are being smart. So there's a couple of teams that didn't potentially show up to the test event just because of budgetary constraints, uh, or preferred to spend the budget elsewhere or in other ways. Um, so that's definitely kind of you can kind of see it. You know, maybe teams that previously would have done X number of team camps have let riders and mechanics do their own little micro team testing and and setup stuff. Uh, so there's definitely been some budgetary stuff or maybe because the season's going to be, you know, has a big gap in the middle and people want to spend money more so in the middle of the year or whatever. So there's been a little bit of that. But then around the actual the actual training and preparation itself, I suppose I can always really speak from my experience, you know, working with multiple different riders on different teams, um, that there's been a lot of riding. So at least, at least with the riders I work, there's been a, quite a few riders who've done a lot of riding and have taken the time. So basically, uh, across the board, we've we've done a lot of 
you know, train for two or three weeks and then they'll ride or have a team camp or travel somewhere to, to ride, you know, quality downhill for a week or three days or two days or four days or whatever it is. So there's been a lot of that. So it's, it's almost been easier at times to plan and organize training because people are getting less bored. So obviously you get longer stints of, of physically focused training that are peppered with, you know, small amounts of downhill, a single or a double day here and there, primarily maybe on local terrain or tracks that are nearby riders that they know super well people start to like question everything and the reason they're questioning things is probably because of boredom and monotony not because they need to question you know what i mean so now it's actually been it's been a nice it's been nice for a lot of the riders they're riding more doing more specific downhill or planning in pre-season races and events so we have these smaller blocks of you know focused condensed training so everyone's just been really knuckled down like i'm back from this event i'm going to train for x number of days do this many sessions get back in the downhill bike yada yada so it's been it's been cool so far it's been it's been good obviously the the risk of injury or the the need for extracurricular activities has been high as well so there's been lots of lots of motorbikes lots of other bikes lots of i wanted people to go on holidays but not many people actually went on holidays in the end <laughs> and we're at that point in the off season where the pace starts getting uh quicker the wick starts getting turned up and we do tend to see a few injuries creeping in before that first round obviously nico's out for uh, a chunk with his hip that he uh sustained racing a few weeks back anyone else we're aware of that's kind of out obviously marine uh miriam sorry has some ongoing concussion yeah, miriam, symptoms miriam but- has ongoing concussion symptoms tani is still taking uh progressive and you know stepwise cautious approach to the return because she wants to return at her best for a long period of time so she's taking her time um greg like you said has obviously come back from his surgery nico has done his hip lucas shaw's come back pretty well from his broken wrist i think it was so mm-hmm. and then there's probably some like jack moyer had uh, an injury that he had to rehab pretty quick before the first ews there's been there's been lots of little bits and bobs and probably a lot of stuff that you don't see on social media and that sort of thing. So and there was a couple of riders didn't show up to the test event because they had odd or weird crashes or tweaks that they didn't want to, you know, well, it's, it's funny. I think we almost, we almost assume that we should be informed via social media of these things, but whatever, whatever way the social media algorithms are working these days, it seems that the riders at least are using them less and less. That's my take on it. Anyway, Teams are using more, it seems, yeah. official channels, whereas riders are using them less and less. And maybe as, as downhill, especially as a, as a sport, if it does grow as it can do with the, the new series, we may see a more social media manager takes over the accounts, you know, more motorsport style, you know, so who, who knows? But yeah, just the, the, the time available to get yourself injured for multiple ridiculous reasons is <laughs> it was definitely one I, I spoke about. I thought about a lot when planning training. So exposure to risk, um, exposure to risk with fatigue in the tank, which is obviously a, a concomitant factor, which needs to be thought about and it has a quite a nonlinear. How, how do you, how do you make nonlinear signs? <laughs> uh, has a quite a nonlinear kind of effect. You know, just cause you're fatigued doesn't mean you'll crash. And just cause you're not fatigued doesn't mean you won't crash or whatever. So yeah, oh, it's it's been a long off season. There's been lots to think about and lots to yeah, lots to worry about. So yeah, and this this episode will come out after the event, but there's a, a British national at Fort William this weekend, and I feel like there's going to be quite a lot of international riders either you know turning up for a bit of the weekend, maybe not necessarily racing, but probably quite a few racing as well, right? Every, everyone's got their eyes on uh, a world champs training session and some more World Cup track bike time. Yeah, I think. Um, a lot of people were riding yesterday and today. The track's closed from tomorrow for a couple of days' maintenance, which caught a few people out, I think, who are arriving today to ride tomorrow, and they won't be doing that. Um, but yeah, a lot of people, I think, in, in Lord, the, the general question was, oh, hey, how you doing? How was your off-season? Are you going to the BDS? That's <laughs> the general. <laughs> everyone asks the same question, you know. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of people are going to be there. Uh, unlike last year, I think you can take the results with a grain of salt, similar to the test event, but you can definitely look into you know the, the practice footage and the general the general pace across all the sectors um of who who's working hard at the event so yeah and then we've got a french cup in two weeks time in the grand Combe, which is a pretty kind of rocky fast track in, in the middle of france near the south more so so a lot of riders are going to go to that as well and then before you know it we're gonna 
slowly, slowly creep our way to the one month to go mark pretty soon, you know, to the first race. And uh, like two months ago, everyone was like, oh, this is so far away. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, here we go. We got a month to go, you know, so. Finally, yeah, yeah. it feels like a long off season and so much speculation about what it's going to be like. It's going to be cool to see the broadcast effectively yeah. of the race for those people that are willing to uh, spend a few dollars and uh, and pay for the the subscription service that looks like GCM plus or discovery plus is needed uh, in order to be able to watch, uh, at least to be able to watch finals. finals I think yeah. maybe semi-finals and junior racing is going to be free to air free on YouTube, which is, which is cool. It'll be interesting to see how many people just watch the free stuff and not the paid for stuff. <laughs> we'll see. And I think yeah. the cross country first cross country world cup is in uh, Nova Mesto in like yeah. 10 days or whatever. So that's actually where you want, if you want to, get a taster for whether you should spend your money that's where you probably should go you know um, i'm looking forward to because cross-country racing has been really really exciting the last few years so i'm looking forward to going to go see what the changes uh look like for them guys because they'll obviously be with us at pretty much every every world cup from lenser height onwards with the exception of one yeah. maybe and i think the plan is in the future to have everything together every race so yeah excited cool. to see and think yeah obviously the, if you want to watch you know the free stuff and then go ride your own bike or you want to watch the free stuff uh, and then you know watch the other stuff on demand afterwards i think yeah, there's lots of options to to consume in the future so it is going to be interesting to see how the fans take to it and how the live footage goes and everything else and the one yeah. thing that wasn't in lord was cameras so you know so there you go but as far as i'm aware it's the the same camera company riggers camera camera people that were doing rebel tv are going to be doing this i think Oh, okay. I'm aware because obviously that's this that's the kind of thing that a lot of you know broadcast companies outsource. You don't just have yeah. you know you you do have like a company like Discovery Eurosport will have their own cameras, but you don't have to use them. You know, or for the yeah. amount of sports they televise, they can't have enough cameras to televise every sport in every corner of the world. So, as far as I'm aware, so I think a lot of the the pan and zooms and the people that you're the behind the scenes at the World Cups of the last decade may actually be similar to before. So. Yeah, well, that's a good thing for sure. Any thoughts on the commentary team? Because that's been announced since we last spoke. Yeah, I suppose they've got Cedric Gracia as the the um, the the life of the party, trying to replace a bit of Rob Warner. Um, it's going to be good, you know. Cedric's Cedric's a character of the sport and really experienced. I listened to some of Cedric's commentary in French for mm -hmm. national champs, which would have been on one of the national champs the last few years, which was on television here in France, and it was really really good. It was actually genuinely really, really good. He was like, he was definitely his his own character, but you could definitely hear the experience coming through. I think the other commentator on the French TV wasn't an experienced mountain bike commentator. So they said some stuff okay. that wasn't, jargon-wise, wasn't correct. You know, using the wrong word for an off-camber or using the wrong way to describe, or describing the wrong thing, what happened in terms of a slide out or a slip. And so Cedric was really astute at picking those things up quickly. So I think, yeah, and him and Rick McLaughlin, obviously, and the majority of the rest of the commentary team and the on-site team are going to be doing like trackside or pit interviews have all worked at the World Cups before for Red Bull TV. I think Hayley Edmonds, Rick McLaughlin, Cedric, uh, they've all worked in some capacity at the World Cups before. So, yeah, I don't think it's going to be, it's not going to be shocking, at least, anyway, that's for sure. It's going to be no. semi-familiar faces, I think, yeah. Yeah, be good to see how it all uh, fleshes out, man. Well, we should let you get on, but it's been a real pleasure after so long chatting about downhill again. Yeah. I'm super excited <laughs> for it, and I'm looking forward to uh, yeah pre race show in Lenzerheide will be the next time we chat about it. Getting uh, getting ready for the first round, and yeah. it's not that far away. So it's going to come around quick, isn't it? Yeah, nice one. Well, have a good uh, rest of the off season, and um, we'll catch you in a few weeks. Right. Yeah. Be good. See you soon. All right, that's it for this episode with Chris. I really hope you've enjoyed it. A massive thanks to Canyon for supporting this episode. They've just launched a whole new range of awesome e-bikes, which you can check out over at canyon.com. What's even better is that if you fancy one of Canyon's awesome e-bikes, then as a downtime listener, you can get free bike guard on your e-bike order until midnight CET on the 3rd of June, 2023 by using the code canyon-fully-charged-2023 at the checkout. That's canyon-fully-charged-2023, all uppercase at the checkout on canyon.com. Terms and conditions apply, and you can find those in the show notes for this episode on downtimepodcast.com. 
Also, a massive thanks to We Are One Composites. If you want to get a very generous 15% off their wheels, rims, and a package bar and stem for the duration of May, head over to weareonecomposites.com and use the code DOWNTIMEMAY2023. That's DOWNTIMEMAY2023, all one word with a capital D and a capital M. You'll find that code in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. And don't forget, you need to enter it at the very final stage of the checkout process in order for it to work. That's the confirm order page at weareonecomposites.com. Also, if you want to be in with a chance of winning one of three pairs of Magira MT7 Pro brakes, then you need to fill out my 2023 listener survey by heading to downtimepodcast.com for slash survey before the 8th of June. Also, don't forget, if you want to help support the podcast, the best way to do that is by heading over to patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast and setting up a donation. If Patreon's not for you, then have a think about other ways you can help, like telling your friends about the show, sharing the episode on your social media, and leaving a review in Apple Podcasts or commenting on the episode in Spotify. We've also got t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hoodies over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop if you want to represent the show. All right, there's plenty more coming, so make sure you're following the podcast by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow or hitting the follow button in your podcast app now. You can also get a bit of extra downtime by signing up to our newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. Okay, that's it for today. We'll have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. <laughs>